to another episode of CI Diaries. I'm Christy Placido. And I'm Carrie Toth. And today we are going to talk to you about the dreaded rubric. Yeah, we got some uh, we got some Twitter inspiration for this episode. Carrie, would you read the tweet? We did. Living legend Sarah Breckley tweeted the other day, I wish Actful would make the rubrics. Departments, PLCs, teachers spend so much time deciphering, debating, and creating for standards and can-dos, but when comparing rubric interpretations to another schools or states or TPTs or publishers, they never match. So we thought the replies to the tweet were amazing, but also it got us thinking about our own rubrics, and so we thought we would just dig into that topic today. Yeah. So we're going to start out, we've kind of got some, some main points we want to make, but we're going to start out just discussing what is the purpose of a rubric. We all use them. Hopefully, hopefully we all use rubrics. Carrie, what do you think? What's the purpose of a rubric in your classroom? I think that the, the original idea of a rubric just came from, okay, if we assign a certain number of points for each of these categories, it takes the subjectivity out of grading. Mm -hmm. Like now it's just this objective. You have to meet this, but I don't honestly, in my opinion, I don't think rubrics do that. We can tell that in our teacher evaluations, we are graded by the Danielson rubric in Illinois. And I can tell you that when I look at the rubric, I see one thing in my classroom, but that does not mean that my admin is going to view that the same way. And we all know that, you know, personal biases and personal choices and your feelings on how, you know, other students have done things or how you did things, they mm-hmm. all influence what you see when you look at a rubric. What about you? Yeah. That I was so honestly, pessimistic of me. I hate to well, start on that foot. <laughs> I know, but it's a tough topic. I, so I feel like in my entire career, I've never, ever just used a rubric and felt, wow, that was just a really valid way to assess that task. You know, like I, I feel so good about that. <laughs> that has never, ever once happened to me. And what I feel like happens is I'll make a rubric or more likely what I would do is find a rubric somewhere and then kind of tweak it for my own needs. Um, what would happen a lot of times though, is I would think I was pretty happy with my rubric And then I would start actually assessing whatever my students had done. And I would start seeing all these holes in the rubric or I would think, oh, shoot, this kid, they they deserve extra points because look at what they just did here. It's so amazing. I don't want to, you know, if I'm following the rubric, they're not going to get that great of a score, but I feel like they deserve something for this little extra special thing that they added into it. And I just... I would have such a hard time sticking to the rubric and mm-hmm. not, you know, I always wanted to find all these exceptions and uh, it's just always a mess for me personally. It is. And, you know, one of the replies to Sarah's tweet was from Amory Chase and she said, language acquisition is an art and language teachers, we have to try and make it a science because we have to get that grade in the grade book. And I love, I think you saw it too. Sarah said, yes, let's all just go to like rubric free Island and we're going to have, uh, you know, a big happy, everybody gets a great grade because they're trying and they're acquiring and we'll have Mm -hmm. puppies. And what else are we bringing to the Island? I I just remember the puppies because that made me excited to go. Let's say snacks. (laughs) 
snacks. Yes, for yeah, sure. We yeah. need snacks and uh, flip flops and puppies. Right. That's about it. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if we didn't have to grade at all? You know, I mean, if kids were, yeah, I mean, ideally, and, yes. <laughs> but that's not reality. So what do we do? No. So what do we do? That's the question. And so that's kind of what Christy and I've been talking about this morning as we were trying to think about rubrics. Like one of the, we'll just start with this point that most people, we know that a lot of you are one teacher in one district all by yourself and you can do whatever you want. But for a lot of teachers, that's not the case. You know, you're part of a Mm -hmm. department. um, You may be part of a giant district and you have to find a way to get a rubric that works for mm-hmm. all of you. So we were thinking, right. you know, what are the things that you do to calibrate those rubrics with your colleagues? How do you sit down and come up with the thing that works for you? And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think we decided that it may look different school by school. Um, yeah, <laughs> we, We're not positive that there is as a right answer to that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, so step one would be, Finding a rubric that you can live with, um, preferably a rubric that does allow for some flexibility because, I mean, the kids don't necessarily fit perfectly into those little boxes, you know? I mean, their their proficiency levels yes. are all over the place and, you know, proficiency is, you know, it's a squiggly line. I mean, it's going to be all over the place and it is hard. It's hard to measure. Um, So I guess finding a rubric that you feel like, okay, I can live with this. I feel like this is a rubric that addresses what I'm asking the kids to do in this performance task. And um, once you have decided on a rubric, if you have colleagues that you're working with, I think it's really important. And Carrie, you and I have actually sat down and done this with our own students' work. Um, So taking that rubric and kind of calibrating it among the people that are going to be using it to assess a a variety of students. So just making sure everyone's interpreting it in the same way and, you know, everybody's on the same page that can be kind of difficult. And it, in our last podcast, we talked a little about assessment and how the OPI is how we assess students actual proficiency in the language. Mm -hmm. Like unless they take a test where it is a physically, you know, you're, you're talking to someone, they're responding to your every prompt and they're pushing you to your breaking point. You're not going to know student proficiency. So we have to realize that our students are just getting performance grades each time. So when they do take proficiency exams, like the OPI students tend to, with four years of study, be around that intermediate, low, mid borderline. And that means that they are not doing things perfect and they may not even be making paragraphs and we may have to ask them to repeat. So for me, the perfect rubric is always something that really focuses more on like, hey, what'd you do well? Um, because that's just the stage of their growth that they're at. And remembering that this is one performance, but it doesn't represent their whole proficiency. So trying to get every performance we can to the highest level possible. So what's that look like for your department? What are the things that are non-negotiables in your department? What are some things people might think of as non-negotiables? I mean, for me, um, I always tried to focus really heavily on the actual communication like is is communication actually taking place so like if it's a if it's like a speaking assessment a presentational speaking let's say um 
they have something that they've been assigned to communicate about. So I'm looking at, you know, did that communication actually occur? So like, to me, that yes. would be a non-negotiable. They have to actually complete the task and the communication that they were asked to make happen needs to have happened. Absolutely. And in speaking, I think that's an easy thing for me to grade because if they did communicate and complete mm-hmm. the task, then I give them full credit on their speaking right. because that is the last of our skills to develop. Now, writing, mm-hmm. I can ask them for things like, okay, we're working on being intermediates in writing. Can you use transition words and paragraphs? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now they know this is the hoop I have to jump through. And so that would be maybe something that I would put on my rubric as a non-negotiable in a writing that, you know, you you want to be more than an intermediate low. So you need to be transitioning, mm-hmm. you know, time marker words, uh, paragraph level. Do I see mm-hmm. evidence of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I tend to shy away from, especially if it's, if it's more of a productive skill, you know, if it's speaking or writing, Yes. I tend to, I tend to be, I tend to not really want to focus on like specific grammar points or things like that, because I feel like that's so artificial and it, I just yes. feel like it complicates the whole thinking process. You know, you're asking a student to communicate about something, but then you're putting all these parameters on them about how they can communicate. So like, I like the idea of, okay, I want you to use transition words. I want you to use paragraphs um, because that isn't like, it's not the same as saying, I want you to use like these specific <laughs> Give me eight imperfect words. verbs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just more like, are you developing in this way? Are you communicating naturally? So, okay, you, you've made the transition. It's okay if you only have like a couple of transition words in your back pocket that you mm-hmm. tend to use all the time. Um, yeah. that's pretty normal. That's pretty normal for anybody who's still in a high school program. They're not going to be using every single transition no, possible. Not all the, the things sun, that we so. know. And that wouldn't be natural. No. And, you know, I think that for my students, when they're sitting down to write, to not have so, like, it's not natural for me for you to tell me, hey, we're going to have this podcast today and I really want you to, you know, tell me five goals that you have using the future tense. <laughs> like, I, you know, I would just pop up a topic and then in in a Lister and Ranta study from about 1997, um, they found that direct correction results in zero student-generated Re, you know, giving the mm-hmm. appropriate response. So for me to go through and mark all the places they didn't use the future tense after I told them to use it, they're not, that generates 0% student repair. Mm-hmm. So maybe a better way would be to give them, you know, a suggestion for next time. So I try, mm-hmm. for me, the the best rubric I've been able to make is one that has kind of the goals for this writing assignment in the center and then blank spaces on either side. So I can write, mm-hmm. you know, this is what you might do better next time, or this is what you did really, really well uh, beyond what I expected on the mm-hmm. assessment. So that way, you know, you said I'm, I went instead of I will go. Uh, next time, try to use this. And that gives them one thing to focus on. That's that's a rubric that's helpful to have, you yeah. know, somewhere that you can put in, what's one thing I can do better next time? I also think, you know, just 
not to get too far into the weeds talking about grammar and things like that, but I, I also feel like it, let's say you're asking your students to tell you about um, something they did last summer. Um, There are, there are more, there's more than one way that students indicate that something happened in the past. So just the fact that they, like, if they said last summer, I go to see my grandma like there's, they are using, they are using some markers that indicate the past tense, even if they didn't necessarily conjugate the verb correctly. So like, how do you account for that in a rubric? I'm right. I, so I want to know, Carrie, like what, what, what do you do in that type of a situation? It's about comprehensibility. Mm-hmm. And if you look, if you really look at ACTFL's proficiency descriptors, there is a long time in mm-hmm. student language production that it says that this student can be understood by, you know, with difficulty by Mm -hmm. someone used to working with learners, which would mean Mm -hmm. us, the teachers. And then it sort of moves up as you get into that intermediate low, it says native speakers could understand you, but only if they're used to working with language learners. Mm -hmm. And so you have to stop and think, hey, these are people that know, you know, false cognates when they hear them. So, I mean, they are going to make a lot of mistakes for a long time. And so just finding ways instead of busting them down for every time they didn't do it, say, Hey, great. I see you used last summer. Don't forget flee as I went. And every time you say that, that gives them another chance to pick up that little structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just, I think just remembering that it is a process, you know, and I, I want to go back to Twitter here for just a second because um, another tweet um, that, uh, by Anne-Marie Chase, actually um, replying to Sarah Breckley's original tweet. Uh, she said, it's tricky because proficiency isn't linear. What one student can do in level one, another can't do until level four. I think it's hard to capture the path to proficiency on a rubric. We don't want to discourage students from continuing language study if they fall below the goal. And I know you and I, you and I have that talked about me, this. That was me, actually. Are you kidding me? No, <laughs> that was my reply. So now you all know my thoughts. Oh my gosh, this, Carrie told that was such a great tweet. I I really love that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, well, since you tweeted it, you can really speak to this. So, um, how do we deal with it in terms of creating a rubric, knowing that we've got students that are just like all over the map with their own proficiency? Because like, you know, you and I have talked about this so many times. We don't want kids to just like get discouraged and quit because if they're not sticking around, they're certainly not learning any language, you know? So I want them to stay with the class, but you know, how do you reconcile that? Before I say this, I want everyone to know that there is not an, an answer. Like there isn't an answer. We can't stop grading. We, I mean, I would love to live on an island with Sarah and puppies and snacks mm-hmm. and not have to grade. Uh, but, you know, she says that in jest because we know we cannot do that. And everybody's in a different situation. Like some departments are like, we have to have grammar on this rubric. And so you can't do anything beyond what your department says. And I'm not trying to be all like, you know, we're going to live on a commune where we never grade them. Uh, but these kids have to. We want them to stay in for a long time Mm -hmm. and they don't develop language at the same pace. And I always think back to like my little chubby son and his little friend, Jonah, Uh, Jonah 
at nine months old, not only was he walking, he was running and climbing up and down their house steps. And Nick was still just a little chunk rolling around on his back. They were born like six days apart. And I was like, you know, it was not a failure on my part or on Nick's part. He just developed differently. And so the, our, our teacher knowledge knows that that's the case with their language. Like you may have mm -hmm. one in Spanish four that's still in the novice level. And then all of a sudden you see the day when they click and they can mm -hmm. put it together in a paragraph and you're so happy, but I mean, we don't have any control over that in the real world. So when you're in a department where you have to do a specific rubric that then really dings those kids that aren't coming up to speed at the, mm -hmm. at the same pace as their classmates, they may not be able to, to stay in. And mm -hmm. we understand that that's the case, but like perfect world, I would love to have a rubric that let every student develop kind of at their own pace. And mm -hmm. as long as they're continually trying to improve, they may not make the A, but they should be able to make the B if they're, mm -hmm. you know, every time they write, if they're trying to get better, what do you think? I agree with that. And honestly, um, there's a lot that goes into it. And I, you know, in my own teaching situation um, in Michigan, so Michigan has a two-year requirement. So everybody takes two years of a language. Um, usually kids that struggle in school are directed into the Spanish program. And I think that's, you know, pretty universal that guidance yes. counselors tend to think, oh, you're struggling. You should definitely take Spanish. Um, but, you know, I, I really want those kids that are forced to take two years, I want them to enjoy those two years. And I preferably, I want them to continue and, and want to go on and learn more. But, you know, if they're a kid who isn't going to be able to walk until they're 15 months old, and I start giving them a failing grade every month, starting at nine months old, I mean, do you honestly think they're still going to want to be graded by me when they're 15 months old? You know, so I... I honestly, and I, and I know you and I agree on this because we've talked about it many times. My solution was I, I made my rubrics kind of easy, easy to attain. You know, I, yeah. I focused really heavily just on the basic communicative function of whatever task I had them doing. And if they, if they completed what the task was kind of set out to be, they pretty much could get an A or a B. It, it wasn't yes. that hard. And why does it have to be that hard? I mean, I, I just don't see the purpose. I, th I think there's that myth mythic term of rigor. Like this mm -hmm. is a college prep class. This has to be rigorous. We need it. But our superintendent, who I love, by the way, he is an awesome superintendent to work for. I, I mean, you know, we know some of you guys have been in a really crappy situation for three years. And I don't mean to rub I'll, that I'll in, sure but our superintendent... To... I'll make sure to send him the link like to boss. this podcast so he can hear you say that. <laughs> so he can see me bragging on him. Yes. Um, <laughs> our superintendent does not like the term rigor. He said that just gives him feelings of like rigor mortis, like you're right. inflexible and you're unable mm -hmm. to bend or move. And so he really wants us to try to push kids to just always be better than they were the day before. And when we think about all the parents, how many parents, if you've been teaching for any length of time, you've had a parent come into your room and say, I took four years of Spanish, French, German, whatever. And all I know how to say is tengo bigote. I have a mustache, <laughs> you know, um, it's always some ridiculous phrase that they mm -hmm. remember. And they say, I didn't learn anything. Well, these are the people that go on to be politicians. Los and... miércoles. <laughs> 
I eat meatballs on Wednesday. What? Uh, These are the people that become our politicians and our policymakers. And if they have a negative impression of what their time in the language classroom was like, then they carry that with them. And Mm -hmm. I I got to go, when I was president of ICTFL, I got to go with Linda Ignatz, who is our former uh, ICTFL president, but also an amazing advocate for languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went to the JNCL Nicholas, Mm -hmm. which is like a you get to meet with senators and you get mm-hmm. to meet with your representatives and you get to talk to them about policy. And it was crazy to go into offices where there were a ton of interns who all had had positive experience in their language classrooms. Mm-hmm. Like the interns were saying, oh, we'd love to, you know, how can we support languages? So those are the people we want to be mm-hmm. graduating. We want to be yeah. graduating people who say, you know, whether they remember everything we said or whether they can conjugate an AR verb. We want them to say, I loved my Spanish class. What can I do to make languages more available? How can we, you know. Not to feel terrible about it. A nation of advocates. Yes, exactly. So like if if you, you know, you've got a kid, okay, maybe they didn't, they weren't the best student, but they feel like, hey, I learned how to say some things. And oh my gosh, I work with this person who speaks Spanish and I actually can have a conversation with that person. You know, that's what we want. That's (laughs) <laughs> to me, that's that's the end game. Absolutely. And and so to make a rubric, how do we, it comes back to that, is it even possible to make a rubric that's going to please everyone all the time? Even yeah. if you take, and I do use the ACTFL can-dos, um, mm-hmm. the ACTFL uh, proficiency descriptors in my mm-hmm. rubrics. But I don't think that they're perfect. Like, I don't think that they're perfect for every situation. I don't think that every district would like them. Some people want really specific, like, what do I do? You know, how do I take off points then if the kid doesn't do everything that meets the task? And, um, you know, there's, there's going to be things that make one person's rubric not work for you. But we would just encourage you to try to work together with your colleagues to set realistic expectations for the end of your language program and then you know decide what's the most important thing is it that they have perfection or that they be moving in their performances toward a higher proficiency right so i think bottom line as we kind of finish up here today i feel like we didn't really solve any problems no um, which we told we... you at the beginning we were not going <laughs> to solve this problem we did have a if you've waited this whole time for us to solve this problem, unsolvable. Yeah. There is a monster at the end of this book and it's Grover. There is. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we didn't solve any problems. Um, I think that there there isn't an answer to this question. There is not a perfect rubric. This is a quest that teachers are going to continue on. Tell them what you said when we were talking about it. Yeah, this I said is... it's like, we're like Don Quixote, you know, we're just tilting at windmills and we're not actually accomplishing <laughs> anything. But yet at the same time, I don't feel like this is an issue that's going to just go away. I think we're going to be expected right. to use rubrics to grade. Grades are never going away. Um, most of us have colleagues that we're going to be expected to be somewhat on the same page with them. And I think all we can really do is just try to accurately identify what realistic expectations are for our students and try to make a rubric that describes those realistic expectations. Yes, that is our that is our takeaway. Realistic yeah. expectations in rubric form, whatever that may look like for you right. and your colleagues. <laughs> so if you're still listening to this, <laughs> 
Thank you. Um, we would love to hear from God you. Bless you. <laughs> um, please feel free to reach <laughs> out to us either by email, um, CI Diaries at waysidepublishing.com. Um, we are also um, on Twitter at CI Diaries. Let us know. Have you found a rubric that you love? Um, have you found a way to make the process of grading really work and be meaningful for you and your students? We would love to hear from you. And um, we, we would love we to do... be proved wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We said um, there's no perfect rubric, but if there is, send yeah, it to if, us, please. If you, if you know of it, we, we would love to see it. So thank you so much. And thanks, Carrie, for the conversation. And we hope you thank guys you. all have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.